You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Back in college, uh, when Emily and I were still dating, I did most of the date night planning for us. And that was just because I got a lot of joy from it. I loved thinking about adventures we could go on and new restaurants we could try, movies we could go see. That's obviously very important to me as well. But there was one evening that uh, happened actually in the first year of us dating. So we're pretty new to the boyfriend-girlfriend thing. Emily said, I want to plan a date night, and I want you to have nothing to do with it. And I was like, great. Sounds awesome. I'm just along for the ride. So she planned a photo scavenger hunt for us. Uh, The idea is this. We would run all around Phoenix, do a bunch of different fun, goofy tasks or experiences, and then we'd bring a disposable camera with us. And we'd take a selfie, and then we'd have these, these printed photos that we could keep as memories of that date night. Super cute, right? Like, I've learned over the last decade what cute means. That is a cute date night. Very much cute from Emily. And it was a great time. We had a good meal together. Uh, we're running all around Phoenix doing funny and silly things. Uh, but eventually, the night took a turn for the worse. So in between two of our scavenger hunt tasks, the first was to get, after we'd eaten dinner, get a milkshake and fries from a fast food restaurant and then drive to a playground where we'd take a picture swinging on the swings with our milkshakes and our fries. Kind of goofy and fun. So we left the fast food restaurant. We got our shakes and our fries. We went to the playground. We're swinging on the swings. It's a great time. We get our picture. And then we walk back to the car to move on to our next task. And I just sink in despair because I start to do the pocket tap. And I realize my wallet is nowhere to be found. My wallet has disappeared. And I have a history of losing things. This is very much who I am. Uh, So this is a moment now where I get to confess to Emily one of my biggest flaws. Uh, And so I do that. I say, Em, I have no idea where my wallet is. And I'm sure inside she's like, this clown, right? Like losing the most valuable thing. What else will he lose? But she didn't say that outwardly. She gave me grace. She said, don't worry about the rest of the date night. Let's go on a search. Because this is a really important thing. We want to make sure we retrace our steps and, and find this. And so she and I go back to the playground, and we're sifting through the sand. It's dark. It's hard to see. We got flashlights as best we can. It's not there. And then we walk back to my car. We're like, maybe it slipped out uh, of my pocket in the car. And so we're moving chairs uh, back and forth with the little automatic mover. We're checking in the trunk, even though we weren't in the trunk. We look in that little little abyss between the driver's seat and the console, where we've lost like 80% of our lives at some point, right, every one of us. We looked everywhere, and it's not in my car. And so we're just defeated. And then I realized, wait. I bought a milkshake and fries, right? I had to have used the money from my wallet. So it has to be there. I must have just left it on the counter or something. And he's like, yeah, that's right. We should drive back. So we drive back to the fast food restaurant. We ask the cashier there, hey, have you seen a wallet? It has a little metal logo on it. It's the Packers logo. I'm a Packers fan. Sorry, not sorry. Packers fan, metal logo on the outside. Martha doesn't like the Packers, apparently. Uh, little logo. It's, it's super recognizable. You can check the ID. It's mine. They're like, no, we haven't, we haven't seen it. And so it's then I realized we're probably not going to find this thing, right? If I used it here, I know I used it here, and I haven't found it between there and here, it's probably gone. And so we sulk back to the car, defeated. I'm bummed because I've ruined Emily's super cute date night. She's bummed because she's realizing, ah, we should probably get back to GCU. we got to cancel cards. we got to get a new ID ordered. we got to do all these tasks. And so we drive out of the, the parking lot, date night ruined, midway through, uh, and down the road, we're driving down the road silent, And suddenly, Emily says, stop. I slam on the brakes. I was like, what? You can't do that to somebody who's driving. That is dangerous. She's like, look, in the middle of the road. 
and there's a, a little shiny piece of metal in the road reflecting in my headlights. I'm like, what? And so there's not a ton of traffic. I hop out of my car, go and bring it back in, and it's my wallet. That little Packers logo was shining in the headlights. And we realized that I probably left it on my roof when we left the fast food restaurant, and it slipped off when we were driving. And so we went from despair to rejoicing very quickly when we found this thing. And the date night could continue, right? And we celebrated this, and now I can tell this funny story and invite all of you into one of my deepest flaws. Uh, but it was just this great, great picture of what we do when we lose something valuable to us. See, the intensity with which we search for something that's been lost indicates the level we value that thing. The only reason we searched like we did is because the wallet was maybe the most valuable thing I owned as a poor college student, right? Had my IDs, my cash, it was super valuable. If it was a pack of gum, we wouldn't have gone to those lengths, right? 70 cents, whatever, I'll leave it, it's fine. But because of the value of this wallet, we were going to every length possible. We were flipping over every stone to find this thing. In this next story, we're going to read together in our series Enduring Questions on the parables of Jesus, we get a story from him about the lost and about the way God responds to those who are lost and what that instills in the lost ones, the value that it indicates in them because the lengths he's willing to go to find them. Turn in a Bible with me, if you have one, to Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be reading from. Uh, starting in verse 1 through verse 7, uh, we're going to have the passage up on the screen if you'd like to follow along there as well. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you guys think of Jesus, what do you think of? Give me some words. What are words that strike you when you think of Jesus? Gracious. Love. Beautiful. Forgiveness. Savior. Anybody think of the word party? Partier? Doesn't really come to mind for us, right? Many of us picture a stoic, solemn, peaceful Jesus with a little halo over his head, glowing face oftentimes, right? We don't think of parties very often, but at this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is going with his disciples to the biggest party that happens every year in ancient Israel, Passover. They're traveling from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem. They're heading to a party, and on the way, they're stopping by party after party after party, gatherings of food and drink with all sorts of different people. Jesus bounced from party to party in his life. And all the while, he and his disciples are proclaiming about the kingdom of God that redemption and restoration, life and grace have come in the person of Jesus. And they're willing to share that at every meal. It becomes a celebration with them. And Luke reminds us in verses one through three here that that's what Jesus has been doing over the course of the last few chapters. 
He reminds us that he has been welcoming and gathering, having banquets with certain types of people. And who he's gathering with really rub some other types of people the wrong way. It's this conflict that happens all throughout Jesus's ministry. The people he spends time with and goes to are the sorts of people that others don't really like that much. And so that conflict, which has been running throughout his whole ministry, comes to a head here. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to address this conflict with some stories. He tells three stories in this chapter about things that are lost. Today, we look at a lost sheep. And we learn three things about how Jesus understands the lost and what he does in response to the lost. We learn first that he reverses the lost. Second, that he runs after the lost. And third, that he rejoices when the lost are found. He reverses, he runs after, and he rejoices. Let's look at that first one here. Jesus reverses the lost. The people he's spending time with are the people that well, cultural elites, social and religious elites at that time would have called the lost or the losers. He's hanging out with, uh, Luke says, tax collectors and sinners. And that group of people has actually been a running character so far in Luke's narrative. He mentions tax collectors and sinners over and over. So it should make us think, well, what made these people so lost, right? Why were these people the losers of the culture? Well, tax collectors, they were representative to the Jews of the first century of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was an oppressive empire who had kind of put their thumb down on the Jewish people at this time. And tax collectors would come and mandate that they give money to that empire. Tax collectors were the ones that subjugated the Jewish people. They were active participants in that subjugation. And so they're not really a fan, as you can understand. And on top of that, tax collectors usually took extra advantage of the people by hiking up taxes and skimming off the top. So they were known as corrupt people. They were participating in the oppression of the Jewish people, and they are actually benefiting from it too. So that's who Jesus is spending time with. And we also learn he's spending time with sinners here. And that's a wide net. Sinners can mean a lot of different things. It does certainly mean the, the out-and-out crooks, the moral uh, destitute, those who are outside of the Jewish understanding of virtue. The hookers and the bums and the drunks, those are the people that Jesus is spending time with. But in that day, it was also believed that your circumstances indicated whether you were a sinner or not sometimes. That God would show favor upon you in your circumstances. So if you were blind or you were lame or you were deaf, that indicated that either you or someone in your family had been unfaithful at some point. You were unclean and unholy because of your condition. Your circumstances made you a sinner in that day to some people. So it wasn't simply the out-and-out moral crooks. It was the people who were seen as unclean, as having physical ailments that showed that God had neglected them or not favored them. These are the social and religious outcasts that Jesus is spending time with. And we also hear about the winners in the culture, the non-lost. Those are the Pharisees and the scribes. These people were the religious and social elites of the day, and they were put together. On the outside, they were shiny. They did all of the right moral and religious things, and they had health, wealth, and success to back it up. Because remember, if God showed you favor, that meant your circumstances would improve. Their circumstances were great. They were wealthy, and so therefore, God must be favoring them. They must be doing the right things. They have this whole perfect package put together. And so right away here, we've got losers and winners. Just in the fabric of the social uh, condition that Jesus is entering into. And the winners are looking at the losers say, saying, those people got to get their stuff together. We have it together here, and God's going to come and justify us because we're good and religious and wealthy and esteemed. And those people who aren't, they better get it together or God's going to condemn them. 
God is going to come and bring justice to us, justify us. And that was further ingrained by Jewish teaching about cleanliness and holiness at the time. It, not only were there winners and losers, but it was believed that if you were a winner and you spent time with losers, you would be corrupted by the losers. Their ailments, their moral condition would actually infect you, and you would have to clean yourself before approaching God in the temple. It worked something like this. I've got a visual here uh, that explains it. Uh, and I've got my laser pointer again, guys. Uh, it is back. I'm just going to come up with visuals every week so I can use this thing, because that's how exciting it is. So this is the paradigm of the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the winners of the culture. They believed that this picture of holiness, being near God, being near religion, being near a center of worship like the temple, was really important to protect, justifiably so, right? We can sympathize with the Pharisees on that. They want to protect holiness. But they believe that if you spent time over here, that these corruptions from the sinners, the sick, the broken, and the outsiders would ultimately corrupt you and prevent you from approaching God. So they drew sharp lines between themselves and the lost, sharp lines between the winners and the losers, because they didn't want to be corrupted. Who's Jesus spending time with? Who's he spending time with? The lost, the losers of the culture. And not only is he spending time with them, he's eating with them. Now, eating is still kind of a, a hospitable thing that we do together, sharing a meal with people over a table is a beautiful thing. But back then it was even more so because they didn't have Purell. It was a dirty, tight, closed area you often washed your hands with water, but we know that water doesn't get rid of all bacteria, right? The nurses and medical professionals in the room will tell you, you don't just wash with water. These people are ripping off of the same pieces of bread and eating the same vegetables and pieces of meat. It is a dirty process. To eat a meal with someone in Jesus' day indicated an intimacy, a friendship with them that nothing else in the culture really did. So the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're looking at who Jesus is spending time with. He's even eating with them, and they're like, okay, what do we do about this guy? And in one sense, you'd think, well, couldn't the Pharisees just discredit Jesus, right? He's just one of the losers, and he's hanging out with the losers, and we can wash our hands of him, right? We can be rid of Jesus. And at first, they kind of start to discredit him. But eventually, Jesus starts undermining who the winners and losers actually are. He starts saying that God actually isn't on the side of the people who think they're put together. God is on the side of the people who know they're lost, know they're broken. And Jesus says that the system has been reversed, he says that instead of the lost and the losers coming and corrupting the holy, the holy has come in Jesus and is healing the lost. He is reversing how every person in the culture believed holiness worked. And he is going and healing those who need healing. He is reversing the way the world has divided all of us up. He's redefining who the losers and the winners are. And he's saying that the ones who think they're winners and have everything put together are the real losers because they miss the kingdom. They miss Jesus. That's why earlier in Luke, he says this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friends, the kingdom of God, the redemption and restoration of Jesus is not full of religious elites. The kingdom of God is not full of stuffy, pretentious pew sitters. The kingdom of God is full of ones who experience pain and brokenness and long for healing. It's full of those who are vulnerable and oppressed and long for justice. It's full of those who know their sinfulness intimately and long for forgiveness. The only ones that receive the life and peace and justice and love and grace of Jesus are the ones who recognize that they can't get those things on their own and need
need him to bring it to them. And that is a radical reversal of what the world says. Every one of us comes into this room being told by the world that we have to be put together, that you need to get your career in shape, that you need to get your money in shape, that you need to get your look in shape. Social media exacerbates this, right? Scroll through Instagram, and the people that are followed are the people who are the most put together, the people who communicate that this life that I've obtained on my effort, I'm keeping it all together, and I need to be like those sorts of people. But that's not how it works in the eyes of God. Jesus shows up and says, God's heart is for the losers, for the lost. God's heart is here to rescue and heal, not give gold stars to the nice, impressive religious people. He's saying that the lost ones are the ones who think they've got it all figured out, and the found ones are the ones who know they don't. There's a great quote that I wanted to share with you guys from Thomas Merton that I think summarizes this well. He says, only the man who has had to face despair is really convinced he needs mercy. Those who do not want mercy never seek it. It is better to find God on the threshold of despair than to risk our lives in a complacency that has never felt the need of forgiveness. A life that is without problems may literally be more hopeless than one that always verges on despair. Good, good stuff. Friends, if we as Christians sign ourselves up on the side of the world's winners, then we will always miss what Jesus is doing because he is always giving the keys to the losers. If we sign ourselves up to look impressive and put together and that that's where we find our value, we're going to miss the Savior of the world. We're going to miss the kingdom of God. And so this should make us ask, who are the losers? Who are the lost in our world? here in this room and outside of this room? Who are the ones who aren't particularly religiously impressive? Who needs emotional or physical or spiritual healing? Who's the one who's mired in sin and needs forgiveness? Who's the one who's sick of the world and the way that it steps on them and the way that it oppresses them and longs for justice? Jesus is for those people. He became one of those people. He was a carpenter, a day laborer from a no-name town called Nazareth. He became the world's losers so that they could be redeemed and healed. That's the message of the kingdom. He reverses the lost. But we also learn a couple other things about what Jesus does with the lost here. He doesn't just reverse them. He also runs after them. That's where the parable comes in here. See, Jesus is sensing the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, sensing that they are looking down on him and the people he's spending time with. And he sees this as a perfect opportunity to tell a story. He could give a public rebuke. He could, could give like a moral command, but he says, no, I'm going to tell a story. Remember what parables do. We talked about this last week. Parables invite us to contemplate, to ask questions, to see what this might speak to us. It's not a strict uh, black and white moral teaching. It's designed to integrate into our lives. And he starts that parable with a rhetorical question. Who among you, if you were a shepherd, you had 100 sheep, who among you, would leave 99 of your sheep to go chase after one that's wandered away? Who among you, right? So we're supposed to ask ourselves that question. What do we think? Would we go? Would I go right now and chase the one that's lost and leave my 99? Many of us think, oh, yeah, obvious, like I care for my sheep, right? But really think about it in this ancient world. Somebody who had 100 sheep and even 99 sheep was particularly wealthy. They would be risking their wealth, their security, and their comfort to chase after one measly sheep that's a bad business decision. 
objectively. Like that's a poor way to run your business because when you bring that sheep back, there might be 10 more that wandered away. You have to go chase after them, right? This question is not an easy one to answer. It's forcing us as religious folks to think, well, am I willing to run after the lost? Am I truly willing to? Or am I content with kind of keeping myself in my little flock? Am I content with kind of keeping myself right here with the people I like and the people I'm comfortable with? Or am I really willing to chase after the one sheep that's wandered away? This is a convicting question he puts in front of the religious folks at this time. And I think the images that he gives us are worth reflecting on as well. The sheep and the shepherd. And we think of sheep today in our kind of world as these cute, fluffy, nice, sweet animals, right? We kind of like that we're compared to sheep. It makes us feel cute and fluffy and nice. But in the ancient world, in some ways, this was supposed to be convicting. See, sheep were not impressive animals. There's a, a quote from a, a 20th century pastor I want to share with you guys. His name's Philip, Philip Keller. And before he went into ministry, he was a shepherd. And so he has read a lot of these uh, passages of Jesus talking about sheep and shepherds in a different way. He says this about sheep. It loses its direction continually in a way a cat or dog never does. Even when you find a lost sheep, the lost sheep rushes to and fro and will not follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it, throw it to the ground, tie its forelegs and hind legs together, put it over your shoulders and carry it home. That's the only way to save a lost sheep. Now let's reflect on what that's saying about us. It doesn't feel so great all of a sudden to be compared to a sheep, right? Now, we, we learn from this image, need to be rescued. We wander. We're drawn away. We rush to and fro. And the thing that actually gives us life oftentimes we don't go to. Now, contrary to popular belief, sheep are not dumb animals. Jesus is not saying humans are stupid here. There's actually a lot of research that say sheep are pretty intelligent animals. But they are vulnerable animals. They might be intelligent, but they're vulnerable. They're susceptible to wandering wherever there might be food in particular. There's a tendency in sheep uh, to be chewing on grass and then see some other grass and kind of wander over to that grass. And then, well, there's some nice grass up there. And then all of a sudden, they find themselves on a cliff face staring down at their death, but there's really good grass there. Right? There's another story that I found of a shepherd whose sheep had wandered into his barn because it had smelled food. And it started to move towards this food, and it caused some timber to collapse onto the sheep. It got stuck. And he said the sheep could have backed its way out if it wanted to but it kept pushing. It kept going for the food because that's what it was drawn to in the first place. He had to rip the sheep out and save it. Friends, every one of us in this room is looking for something to feed on in the deepest parts of our beings. Something that can give us true and lasting satisfaction. And we will feed on that thing even when it becomes harmful to us. We will be like sheep, stuck urging after food as timber is falling down upon us. For you, it might be image or status. It might be wealth. It might be dating or marrying Mr. or Mrs. X. It might be worldly success. Whatever it is, every one of us elects to build our life upon the pursuit of some food to fulfill us. And Jesus tells us that eventually, Every single one of those foods, if we elevate them to be the primary objective in our life, they're going to let us down. They will fail to satisfy us. And the data backs this up. If you're thinking image or status or success will fulfill you, it's disconcerting news to know that CEOs here in the Western world 
struggle with depression at twice the rate of the average population. The more success you feel, the more pressure you will feel, and the more you realize that that success didn't fulfill you the way you wanted. If you think it's money or security, other studies show that children and preceding adults that those children go into that are raised in highly affluent situations struggle with depression and anxiety more than their peers who aren't raised in affluent positions. If you think it's relationships, talk to anyone in this room who's been married for any length of time. That spouse, guaranteed, has let you down. They've ruined your date night by losing their wallet at some point, right? They have let you down. All of these things, if we make them ultimate in our lives, will not satisfy us. We are designed for a different sort of food. And that food comes from relationship and following the Good Shepherd. That's what Jesus is saying here. Remember at the start of this library of texts, Genesis 1 and 2, humans are made to live in right relationship to God, right relationship to each other, and right relationship with the world. Perfect harmony and shalom. And humans decide, you know what? I think I can define this better on my terms. Cool, God, I like this, but I kind of just want to use the stuff you gave me how I want. And it ruins that perfect harmony. But we are made to know God, to love others, and to love the creation around us. That is the, the food that we're made to feed on. And all of us, like sheep, have gone astray from that heavenly food. But that's not the end of the story. There's another image Jesus gives us to reflect on, the image of the shepherd. And the shepherd here is the stand-in for God, and the shepherd always goes after the sheep that has wandered away. Question for you. What does the sheep do in this story to warrant the shepherd chasing after it? What's it do in the text? It, it gets lost. That's the only thing that the sheep does. The sheep is not impressive. The sheep does not warrant the love of the shepherd. The shepherd goes independent of what the sheep does or doesn't do. The sheep was not esteemed moral and religious. The sheep did not have a three-piece suit. The sheep was not impressive at public speaking. The sheep didn't have a nice, tidy 401k. The sheep is not a super sheep, friends. The only thing it does to qualify the love of the shepherd is that it's lost. That's it. Friends, there is nothing you have to do to warrant the love and grace of God. Nothing. You don't have to morally posture yourself. You don't have to be put together for the religious people. All you have to do is acknowledge you need him. That's it. If you hear nothing else this morning, friends, God loves you. And he will chase after you no matter what food you've been feeding on. He will chase after you no matter how torn up your life is. God loves you, he is on your side, he is coming after you, and he is relentless. That's true now, and that will always be true, and if you ever question it, look at Jesus. Look at the life he lived. Look at the people he went to and spent time with. Look at the cross that he died on. God will go to any length to give you the life you were made for. He longs to find you. So that's the second thing we learn about Jesus here. He runs after the lost. And the third thing we learn is that he rejoices when the lost is found. When the shepherd comes home, it's celebration and rejoicing, like the wallet in the street. He puts the sheep on his, sh on his shoulders and carries it back and throws a giant party. 
And there's a word that Jesus uses in this passage to describe this process of bringing the sheep back. Repentance is the word he uses, which is a fancy theological word for us. What we're learning here is that God rejoices more over one sinner who repents than over a bunch of folks who try to turn in their religious punch cards and get them validated. But I think there's an important thing to remember about this process of repentance, what it is and what it isn't. See, many of us think that when we confess or we repent to God, we're doing the right thing to re-earn his good graces. That we are coming to him to uh, undo what we've done. And our undoing, our effort, is the thing that gets us back into the love of God. But that's not where repentance is. The sheep doesn't do anything, right? The only thing that repentance is is an acknowledgement that I've been going the wrong way and that I need to follow Jesus instead. That's all repentance is. It is not an impressive turn so that you get back into the good graces of God. You're already there. God already loves you and cares for you. So when we confess, we're not trying to re-earn the love of God again. We are acknowledging instead that we failed to live out of that love and that we now can live a different way. That's what repentance looks like. It's allowing the shepherd to throw us on his shoulders again. And when we acknowledge that, when we receive that truth, and when we live that sort of life, God throws a massive party. And again, I think sometimes, especially those of us that have been in the church for a while, still tend to think that even when God forgives me, he just sort of lets me in the back door, right? He's like, ah, this guy again, right? He did the same thing. It's happened 30 times in the last year. You know what, man? Because I'm so good, you're back in. Just don't let me look at you. Hang out with the rest of those. Like, do the right religious things now. You're in, but just barely. That's not who God is. That's not the picture of God here. The shepherd throws a party as soon as that lost one comes back. He's got an expansive banquet table. He's got overflowing cups and overflowing plates. There's music and there's dancing and there's singing and there's rejoicing. Anytime we return to him and trust in him, Again, that's what happens when we repent to this God because he loves us that much. That's how valuable we are in God's eyes. Now, most scholars, when they look at this passage, see it connected to another Old Testament passage. And they think Jesus might be actually playing with this other Old Testament passage a little bit. It's in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34. That passage, the prophet starts to write about the ways that Israel, the nation of Israel at that time, has failed to care for those who are hurting. And he uses a shepherd-sheep comparison there. He says, Israel, you guys have been the shepherds. Your job has been to care for those who are needy, for those who are vulnerable, for those who are oppressed, for those who are wandering and lost. And Ezekiel calls them out over and over again, saying, you failed to be those sorts of shepherds. You failed to love the sheep. He says these words, you have not strengthened the weak, you have not healed the sick, you have not bound up the injured, you have not brought back the strayed, you have not sought the lost, but with force and harshness, you've ruled over them. Israel has failed to be the people of God, the people who love the sheep. The religious and social establishment are full of winners who do their winning thing and neglect the losers. And so God, in Ezekiel 34, says he's going to come back and be the shepherd that brings the sheep back. Where the religious establishment fails, God still shows up. Ezekiel says, God will redeem and heal the lost. And so when Jesus references this story and connects himself to this story, he's throwing it in the face of the religious establishment saying, guys, God is back. The shepherd is here. What are you going to do about it? It's here. What Ezekiel talked about. What are you going to do? 
Are you going to continue to neglect the poor and the needy in your midst? Are you going to care for them? And those of us who are religious sorts of people sitting here in church on Sunday have to ask ourselves the same question. What are we going to do? The shepherd's arrived. He has come to heal everyone that's lost. Are we going to be the sorts of people that go with him? Because we say we follow Jesus. That means we have to follow him everywhere he goes. That means we have to follow him to those who are longing for his justice, for his peace, for his love, for his sustaining life. We are a community built around that sort of shepherd. And Jesus gives us this story so that we might face it in our own lives. So friends, what are you going to do? Will you follow Jesus to those who are lost in your life, to those who are lost in your community, to those who are lost here at Hope Women's Center? There's a reason we meet in this space, friends. There's people who are longing for Christ, people who are longing for a shepherd who can give them the life they were made for. It's up to us what we're going to do. The shepherd has come, friends. Will we follow him? Let's pray.